Hello, and welcome to the How Life Works podcast, the podcast that helps introductory biology students better understand some of the toughest topics in the course. These podcasts are written and delivered by the authors of Biology How Life Works and are sponsored by Macmillan Learning. Learn more at macmillanlearning.com. The global coronavirus pandemic has confronted all of us and those we love with many challenges and hardships including illness, social distancing and isolation, closures of schools and businesses, and economic upheaval. It has put a bright spotlight on existing inequalities in healthcare, housing, and access to food. It has also challenged our medical and public health systems in terms of the testing, tracking, and treating of patients affected by COVID-19. That being said, there have been moments of hope unity and bravery as we all work together to slow the spread of the virus, share resources, and communicate online. We also applaud and are deeply grateful for those on the front lines, from healthcare workers and scientists, to grocery store clerks and postal workers, to first responders and food bank volunteers, and so many, many others. For those of you that are students of biology, The novel coronavirus and the disease that it causes also represent an especially important context for digging into the biology of how life works. The pandemic gives us a chance to review some basic concepts about viruses that are relevant to what you are learning in your introductory biology class, while allowing us to tackle some basic questions about the virus itself and the disease that it causes. So what is a virus? A virus is a small infectious agent that invades cells. Viruses come in a wide variety of sizes and shapes. Most viruses are tiny, some hardly larger than a ribosome. Roughly speaking, the average size of a virus relative to that of the cell it infects can be compared to the size of an average person relative to that of a commercial airliner. All viruses contain a nucleic acid genome which may be DNA or RNA. Most viral genomes range in size from 3 kilobases to 300 kilobases and contain just a handful of genes. The genome is packaged inside a protein coat called a capsid. Some viruses also have an outer lipid envelope. The novel coronavirus has all three of these components, a genome, capsid, and envelope. It is an RNA virus, which means that its genome is RNA, not DNA, which is the genetic material for all cells. Surrounding the genome is a protein coat, and it has an outer phospholipid bilayer. This envelope has several different types of proteins associated with it. They are all glycoproteins, meaning that they are all proteins covalently linked to carbohydrates. The lipid envelope with spikes of glycoproteins on its surface gives the coronavirus its name. Corona means crown, which describes its appearance under an electron microscope. You've probably by now seen renderings of the virus in the news with this characteristic shape. The formal name of this novel coronavirus is SARS-CoV-2. 
SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, one of the deadliest symptoms of the disease. And COVID-2 simply means coronavirus 2, as there are several different types of coronaviruses. This coronavirus causes a disease called COVID-19. CO stands for coronavirus, V is virus, and D is disease. The 19 is short for 2019, the year it was first described. One question that often comes up is whether or not viruses are actually alive. You probably know from your biology class that the cell is the fundamental unit of life. This is one of the central ideas of cell theory. Viruses are typically way smaller than cells. So why aren't viruses the smallest living entity? All cells have three essential features. The capacity to store and transmit information, a membrane that selectively controls movement of substances into and outside of the cell, and the ability to harness energy from the environment. Do viruses share these features too? Viruses do have a stable archive of genetic information that is stored and transmitted, just like cells have. However, by themselves, viruses cannot read and use the information contained in their genetic material. To replicate their genome and synthesize proteins, they require a cell to play host. In addition, viruses are not able to regulate the passage of substances across their protein coats or lipid envelope the way that cells do. Nor can they harness energy from the environment without infecting a cell. As a result, most scientists do not consider a virus to be alive. It is essentially an encapsulated genome that requires a cell to carry out its functions. Nevertheless, viruses can cause great havoc as we are all currently experiencing firsthand. So how does a virus infect a cell? A virus infects a cell by binding to the cell's surface, inserting its genetic material into the cell, and in most cases, using the cellular machinery to produce more viruses. In essence, the virus hijacks the cell. After using the cell's machinery to make more of themselves, viruses can then lyse or break open the cell, releasing many new viruses capable of infecting many more cells. In the case of viruses like HIV, the genetic material of the virus becomes integrated into the DNA of the host cell. The novel coronavirus infects cells in a way that is typical of RNA viruses. It binds to and enters a cell where the viral RNA is translated to make an enzyme called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. This polymerase uses viral RNA as a template to make more RNA molecules. This is different from what normally occurs in a cell. Cells use a DNA-dependent RNA polymerase to transcribe RNA from a DNA template. So in a cell, genetic information flows from DNA to RNA to protein. In RNA viruses, however, information flows from RNA to more RNA to protein. Some of these newly produced RNAs are translated to make the viral proteins. Then the RNA and protein components are packaged into new virus particles that bud from the host cell, 
wrapping themselves in a piece of cell membrane and ultimately going on to infect new cells. So what cells can a virus infect? A cell that can be infected by a virus is called a host cell. All known cells and organisms are susceptible to viral infection, including bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes. So they can all serve as hosts for viruses. Some viruses kill the host cell, others do not. Although viruses can infect all types of living organisms, a given virus can infect only certain species or types of cell. At one extreme, a virus can infect just a single species. A good example is smallpox, which infects only humans. In cases like this, we say that the virus has a narrow host range. For some viruses, the host range can be very broad. For example, rabies infects many different types of mammals, including squirrels, dogs, and humans. Similarly, tobacco mosaic virus, a plant virus, infects more than 100 different species of plants. In the case of the novel coronavirus, there are three types of glycoproteins on the surface of the virus. These are the spike, envelope, and membrane glycoproteins. The spike glycoprotein protrudes from the surface of the virus. It recognizes and binds to proteins on the surface of certain human cells, like those of the respiratory tract. As it latches on, it enters the cell. Only cells with a surface protein capable of binding to the viral spike glycoprotein can be infected by the novel coronavirus. In this way, it is able to infect these types of cells, but not other types of human cells. What group is the novel coronavirus part of? One of the most useful ways to classify viruses is called the Baltimore system, which is named after David Baltimore, who came up with it. According to this system, there are seven major groups of viruses, designated one through seven in Roman numerals. These groups are largely based on what their genomes consist of and how the genomes are replicated. The novel coronavirus is assigned to group four in the Baltimore system. Viruses in this group all have a genome made up of single-stranded RNA. In addition, viruses in group four are all positive sense viruses. This means that the RNA strand of the virus is the same as the sequence of the messenger RNA used for protein synthesis. Other viruses in this group include Zika virus, hepatitis C virus, and the eastern equine encephalitis virus. The novel coronavirus is only one of several different kinds of coronaviruses. Coronaviruses usually cause mild respiratory systems and are often grouped into the informal category of the common cold. The novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, is much more virulent. The virulence of a virus or other infectious agents refers to the severity of the disease that it causes. How does the virulence of a virus change over time? Viruses are not considered to be living, but they nevertheless are subject to natural selection and evolution over time. The genomes of viruses tend to have a far higher mutation rate than cellular genomes. 
This is because the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase of RNA viruses like coronavirus lacks the proofreading ability of DNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which is used by cells. As a result, the sequences of viral genomes can change quite rapidly over time. As a result of the fundamental processes of mutation followed by natural selection, viruses are typically cause mild disease, may evolve to cause more severe disease. This has occurred multiple times with the influenza virus, which causes the flu. The flu typically causes seasonal outbreaks or epidemics, but four times in the 20th century, it spread more widely than usual and infected more people, reaching what scientists call pandemic levels. The 1918 flu pandemic, just over 100 years ago, is perhaps the best known and most deadly of the flu pandemics. The novel coronavirus, similarly, seems to have mutated such that it is more virulent than other coronaviruses. Viruses may also evolve in such a way that they change their host specificity. In other words, viruses that infect one species may evolve the ability to infect a new species. The host range of a virus can change as viral surface proteins evolve over time to interact with new host cell proteins. For example, although the first case of AIDS was reported in the United States in the early 1980s, it originated in Africa much earlier, possibly as early as the 1920s. Around this time, a closely related virus that infects chimpanzees made the jump to humans, likely when humans came into contact with infected blood by hunting chimpanzees for food. Similarly, avian or bird flu is a type of influenza virus that was once restricted primarily to birds, but now can infect humans. The first reported case in humans was in 1996, and the disease has since spread widely. Where the novel coronavirus originated is not entirely clear. It most likely came from bats, but may have passed through another animal, perhaps pangolins, before being able to infect humans. So while the novel coronavirus has probably been around for a long time, it is new to humans and further illustrates that viruses can indeed evolve over time. Once in humans, how does a virus spread to others? In general, viruses spread in all kinds of ways. Some are transmitted in the air, others in water, still others in blood or other body fluids, and some by insects or other vectors like mosquitoes and ticks. We are learning more about the novel coronavirus every day, and there is still much to discover. But it seems to spread primarily in small, really tiny water droplets that we expel when we talk, cough, or sneeze. This makes sense, as the coronavirus is primarily a respiratory virus. These droplets are very small, so they can float for some distance in the air where someone else might breathe them in. These tiny droplets can also land on surfaces and then are passed on when another person touches the contaminated surface. That person may then touch their face 
and potentially become infected with the virus. Person-to-person spread of a virus is called community spread, and it is one of the serious public health concerns of the current pandemic. Scientists are closely observing the number of people a single person with the disease typically infects. As one person infects several others, the number of cases will grow exponentially over time, potentially overwhelming the healthcare system. If we can reduce the community spread so that infected individuals pass it on to as few others as possible, then we can suppress the number of cases over time. So what can we do to reduce the spread of the viruses? Viruses are different from bacteria, so antibiotics don't work. There are drugs called antivirals, but we have just a handful of them, and they only work for specific types of viruses. Some of these interfere with viral enzymes. Others prevent the genome of the virus from replicating. Still others prevent integration of the viral genome into the host DNA. Currently, while many antivirals are being tested, and some do show promise, there are none that have been shown to be definitively effective against the novel coronavirus. Therefore, initial efforts are aimed at preventing infection and reducing the spread of the virus. We can all minimize the chances of infection through basic measures, such as coughing or sneezing into our our elbows rather than our hands, not touching our faces, and hand-washing frequently with soap. This kind of hand-washing is particularly effective because soap disrupts the lipid envelope surrounding the coronavirus, and flowing water removes virus from the surfaces of our hands. We can also reduce the spread of the disease by staying home, minimizing contact with others and avoiding groups. These kinds of behaviors collectively go by the name social distancing. Finally, if we have been exposed to someone who tested positive, staying isolated or quarantining ourselves for 14 days is recommended. So how do pandemics end? There is really only one way that pandemics end, and that is by a significant portion of the population acquiring immunity to the virus, what is called herd immunity. People can become immune to the virus in one of two ways, by becoming infected with the virus or by receiving a vaccine. In both cases, what happens is that the immune system produces antibodies in response to the foreign virus. These antibodies circulate in the blood and help defend us from future infections by the same virus. Herd immunity takes time as we purposefully slow down the spread of the virus through social distancing and other measures so as to not overwhelm the healthcare system. This is known as flattening the curve. And vaccine development takes time as well, not only to develop the vaccine, but also to ensure that it is safe and effective through clinical testing. Careful monitoring of the spread of the disease through testing is also critical, as it can be used to pinpoint outbreaks and protect vulnerable individuals, such as the elderly or people with underlying respiratory diseases. Testing can take two forms. We can look for the presence of the virus in the respiratory tract using a nasal swab, 
This form of testing indicates active infection with the virus. Alternatively, we can look for the presence of antibodies in the blood. This form of testing indicates infection sometime in the past. It will take time for everything to return to some semblance of normalcy. And even then, we will feel the effects of the pandemic for years to come. Along the way, we are all learning more about viruses and public health. At the same time, we are also learning that we can pull together as a community to confront a global crisis. This truly gives us all something to hold on to, namely hope. Thank you for listening to the How Life Works podcast. I hope this talk helped better your understanding of the material you're covering in the course. Good luck and don't ever stop being curious about how life works.